The Last Messiah by Peter Wessel Zapfe. The value of a fortune to life consists in the rich opportunities for anchoring and distraction offered to the owner. Both for collective and individual anchorings, it holds that when a segment breaks, there is a crisis that is graver the closer that segment to main firmaments. Within the inner circles, sheltered by the outer ramparts, such crises are daily and fairly pain-free occurrences, disappointments. Even a playing with anchoring values is here seen, wittiness, jargon, alcohol. But during such play one may accidentally rip a hole right to the bottom, and the scene is instantly transformed from euphoric to macabre. The dread of being stares us in the eye, and in a deadly gush we perceive how the minds are dangling in threads of their own spinning, and that a hell is lurking underneath. The very foundational firmaments are rarely replaced without great social spasms and a risk of complete dissolution, reformation, revolution. During such times, individuals are increasingly left to their own devices for anchoring and the number of failures tends to rise. Depressions, excesses and suicides result, German officers after the war, Chinese students after the revolution. Another flaw of the system is the fact that various danger fronts often require very different firmaments. As a logical superstructure is built upon each, there follow clashes of incommensurable modes of feeling and thought. Then despair can enter through the rifts. In such cases a person may be obsessed with destructive joy, dislodging the whole artificial apparatus of his life, and starting with rapturous horror to make a clean sweep of it. The horror stems from the loss of all sheltering values, the rapture from his by now ruthless identification and harmony with our nature's deepest secret, the biological unsoundness, the enduring disposition for doom. We love the anchorings for saving us, but also hate them for limiting our sense of freedom. Whenever we feel strong enough, we thus take pleasure in going together to bury an expired value in style. Material objects take on a symbolic import here, the radical approach to life. When a human being has eliminated those of his anchorings that are visible to himself, only the unconscious ones staying put, then he will call himself a liberated personality. A very popular mode of protection is distraction. One limits attention to the critical bounds by constantly enthralling it with impressions. This is typical even in childhood. Without distraction, the child is also insufferable to itself. Mom, what am I to do? A little English girl visiting her Norwegian aunts came inside from her room, saying, What happens now? The nurses attain virtuosity. Look, a doggy. Watch, they are painting the palace. The phenomenon is too familiar to require any further demonstration. Distraction is, for example, the high society's tactic for living. It can be likened to a flying machine, made of heavy material but embodying a principle that keeps it airborne whenever applying. It must always be in motion as air only carries it fleetingly. The pilot may grow drowsy and comfortable out of habit, but the crisis is acute as soon as the engine flunks. The tactic is often fully conscious. Despair may dwell right underneath and break through in gushes in a sudden sobbing. When all distractive options are expended, spleen sets in, ranging from mild indifference to fatal depression. Women, in general, less cognition-prone and hence more secure in their living than men, preferably use distraction.
a considerable evil of imprisonment is the denial of most distractive options. And as terms for deliverance by other means are poor as well, the prisoner will tend to stay in the close vicinity of despair. The acts he then commits to deflect the final stage have a warrant in the principle of vitality itself. In such a moment he is experiencing his soul within the universe and has no other motive than the utter inendurability of that condition. Pure examples of life panic are presumably rare, as the protective mechanisms are refined and automatic and to some extent unremitting. But even the adjacent terrain bears the mark of death. Life is here barely sustainable and by great efforts. Death always appears as an escape. One ignores the possibilities of the hereafter, and as the way death is experienced is partly dependent on feeling and perspective, it might be quite an acceptable solution. If one in statu mortis could manage a pose, a poem, a gesture to die standing up, i.e. a final anchoring or a final distraction, arses his death, then such a fate is not the worst one at all. The press, for once serving the concealment mechanism, never fails to find reasons that cause no alarm. It is believed that the latest fall in the price of wheat, when a human being takes his life in depression, this is a natural death of spiritual causes. The modern barbarity of saving the suicidal is based on a hair-raising misapprehension of the nature of existence. Only a limited part of humanity can make do with mere changes, whether in work, social life or entertainment. The cultured person demands connections, lines, a progression in the changes. Nothing finite satisfies at length. One is ever proceeding, gathering knowledge, making a career. The phenomenon is known as yearning or transcendental tendency. Whenever a goal is reached, the yearning moves on. Hence its object is not the goal, but the very attainment of it, the gradient, not the absolute height, of the curve representing one's life. The promotion from private to corporal may give a more valuable experience than the one from colonel to general. Any grounds of progressive optimism are removed by this major psychological law. The human yearning is not merely marked by a striving toward, but equally by an escape from. And if we use the word in a religious sense, only the latter description fits. For here none has yet been clear about what he is longing for, but one has always a heartfelt awareness of what one is longing away from, namely the earthly veil of tears, one's own inendurable condition. If awareness of this predicament is the deepest stratum of the soul, as argued above, then it is also understandable why the religious yearning is felt and experienced as fundamental. By contrast, the hope that it forms a divine criterion, which harbours a promise of its own fulfilment, is placed in a truly melancholy light by these considerations. The fourth remedy against panic, sublimation, is a matter of transformation rather than repression. Through stylistic or artistic gifts can the very pain of living at times be converted into valuable experiences. Positive impulses engage the evil and put it to their own ends, fastening onto its pictorial, dramatic, heroic, lyric or even comic aspects. Unless the worst sting of suffering is blunted by other means or denied control of the mind, such utilization is unlikely, however. Image. The mountaineer does not enjoy his view of the abyss while choking with vertigo. Only when this feeling is more or less overcome does he enjoy it. 
anchored. To write a tragedy, one must to some extent free oneself from, betray, the very feeling of tragedy and regard it from an outer, e.g. aesthetic point of view. Here is, by the way, an opportunity for the wildest round dancing through ever higher ironic levels into a most embarrassing circulus vitiosus. Here one can chase one's ego across numerous habitats, enjoying the capacity of the various layers of consciousness to dispel one another. The present essay is a typical attempt at sublimation. The author does not suffer. He is filling pages and is going to be published in a journal. The martyrdom of lonely ladies also shows a kind of sublimation. They gain in significance thereby. Nevertheless, sublimation appears to be the rarest of the protective means mentioned here. Is it possible for primitive natures to renounce these cramps and cavorts and live in harmony with themselves in the serene bliss of labour and love? Insofar as they may be considered human at all, I think the answer must be no. The strongest claim to be made about the so-called peoples of nature is that they are somewhat closer to the wonderful biological ideal than we are natural people. And when even we have so far been able to save a majority through every storm, we have been assisted by the sides of our nature that are just modestly or moderately developed. This positive basis, as protection alone cannot create life, only hinder its faltering, must be sought in the naturally adapted deployment of the energy in the body and the biologically helpful parts of the soul, subject to such hardships as are precisely due to sensory limitations, bodily frailty, and the need to do work for life and love. And just in this finite land of bliss within the fronts, do the progressing civilization, technology, and standardization have such a debasing influence? For as an ever-growing fraction of the cognitive faculties retire from the game against the environment, there is a rising spiritual unemployment. The value of a technical advance to the whole undertaking of life must be judged by its contribution to the human opportunity for spiritual occupation. Though boundaries are blurry, perhaps the first tools for cutting might be mentioned as a case of a positive invention. Other technical inventions enrich only the life of the inventor himself. They represent a gross and ruthless theft from humankind's common reserve of experiences and should invoke the harshest punishment if made public against the veto of censorship. One such crime, among numerous others, is the use of flying machines to explore uncharted land. In a single vandalistic glob, one thus destroys lush opportunities for experience that could benefit many if each, by effort, obtained his fair share. The current phase of life's chronic fever is particularly tainted by this circumstance. The absence of naturally, biologically based spiritual activity shows up, for example, in the pervasive recourse to distraction entertainment, sport, radio, the rhythm of the times. Terms for anchoring are not as favourable. All the inherited collective systems of anchorings are punctured by criticism, and anxiety, disgust, confusion, despair leak in through the rifts, corpses in the cargo. Communism and psychoanalysis, however incommensurable otherwise, both attempt, as communism has also a spiritual reflection, by novel means to vary the old escape anew. 
applying respectively violence and guile to make humans biologically fit by ensnaring their critical surplus of cognition. The idea in either case is uncannily logical, but again it cannot yield a final solution, though a deliberate degeneration to a more viable nadir may certainly save the species in the short run, it will by its nature be unable to find peace in such resignation, or indeed find any peace at all. If we continue these considerations to the bitter end, then the conclusion is not in doubt. As long as humankind recklessly proceeds in the fateful delusion of being biologically fated for triumph, nothing essential will change. As its numbers mount and the spiritual atmosphere thickens, the techniques of protection must assume an increasingly brutal character, and humans will persist in dreaming of salvation and affirmation and a new messiah. Yet when many saviors have been nailed to trees and stoned on the city squares, then the last messiah shall come. Then will appear the man who, as the first of all, has dared strip his soul naked and submit it alive to the outmost thought of the lineage, the very idea of doom. A man who has fathomed life and its cosmic ground, and whose pain is the earth's collective pain. With what furious screams shall not mobs of all nations cry out for his thousandfold death, when like a cloth his voice encloses the globe and the strange message has resounded for the first and last time? The life of the worlds is a roaring river, but earth's is a pond and a backwater. The sign of doom is written on your brows. How long will ye kick against the pinpricks? But there is one conquest and one crown, one redemption and one solution. Know yourselves, be infertile, and let the earth be silent after ye. And when he has spoken, they will pour themselves over him, led by the pacifier-makers and the midwives, and bury him in their fingernails. He is the last messiah. As son from father, he stems from the archer by the waterhole.